If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Welcome to Hamilton Today here on 900 CHML. Tina Turner, wow, Tina Turner died today, 83 years old. First of all, I can't even imagine that Tina Turner could be 83 years old. That is, that, that just doesn't seem remotely possible. If you grew up in the 80s like I did, Tina Turner is just perpetually whatever age Tina Turner was back then. I mean, I, let's see, we do the math. I mean, she was in her 40s. She di- didn't seem even in her 40s back then, but yeah, it was just Tina Turner was Tina Turner. It was, it was, there were, I don't know, am, am I alone in this? There was no age to Tina Turner. She was just... Tina Turner, never thought of her. I mean, Frank Sinatra, for example, you saw him later as an old man still singing. He was, you know, all the other ones, all the other, they, they, they got all, Tina Turner was just Tina Turner. Anyway, 83 years old. I was, I was shocked when I, well, I was shocked when I heard she passed away today. I was even more shocked to hear that she was 83 years old. That just somehow seems almost impossible. Anyway. Scott Radley in for Scott Thompson today here on Hamilton Today. Glad you're along with us. Lots to get to today. Once again, your friend and mine, Will, has lined up an amazing show for us. Let me tell you what's coming up. We're going to be chatting about alcohol. There's how we're going to start. There, there's, there's a way to get into the show. Liquor. But we're not just talking about, hey, let's go drink some liquor. There are now... Places that are putting warning labels on liquor, not simply to say, um, you know, if you're pregnant, don't drink this or don't drink and drive, which are, you know, certainly valid and worthwhile warnings. But there are now uh, warning labels saying liquor, alcohol leads to cancers. Will that scare people off? I mean, if we start to go cigarette packaging, is that going to scare people off of drinking? We'll get into that one. Uh, in a little bit, uh, debt. Oh man, debt. We are, we are in debt. We're going to talk about debt. We're going to talk about speaking of money. We're going to talk about the governor general of Canada, not David Johnson. We'll get into him too, but the governor general of Canada just got a really nice raise. I mean, at what point does that whole thing that we heard through COVID about we're all in this together, at what point does that actually kick in? At what, at what point are we all in this together? Um, oh, and while we're talking money, there are talks that if you are a sports fan, watching sports in the not too distant future is going to cost you a lot of money. No, you're not going to probably be turning on your cable channel and watching as you are now. There is a day coming when apparently you're going to be paying to watch the things you watch as opposed to it being free. How does that change things for us? If you travel, we're going to get into the idea of a trusted traveler program. Is this a good idea? It sounds like a great idea. If you are a trusted traveler, kind of like when you get the Nexus pass at the border, when you're driving, if you're a trusted traveler, you can just walk through basically without all the take off your belt, take off your shoes, get padded down, go through the machine, raise your hands, take out your electronics, blah, 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 blah. If you're really lucky, get your hands swabbed for explosives or whatever that program is. Get the wand in certain, sometimes exciting, sometimes less so places, uh, all that stuff. Maybe you don't need to do that anymore. We'll get into that one. Here's one, you know, money seems to be a theme of the show today. It wasn't intended that way, but it's turning out that way. Here's one. How much should Ontario pay to host five world cup soccer games in 2026? The price keeps going up and up and up and up. How much is a reasonable amount to pay to host five soccer games or football if you prefer? Either one. Well, we'll, we'll be talking about that one. Gas prices. Hey, it is, it's a theme. I didn't even realize this as, as Will handed me the sheet today. It is a theme, but gas prices, guess where they're going? I'll give you a hint. Not down. <laughs> we'll get into that one. Uh, the David Johnson scenario is, uh, it's still a story going on today and uh, so many other things, so many other things going on today. Things change over time. We have heard over the years all kinds of reports that, Hey, red wine is great for your health. Red wine is fantastic for your health. Then we've heard, no, red wine is not good for your health. And 
a little bit of alcohol, you know, it's good for the constitution. And then, oh no, alcohol really is not that good for you after all. It's very difficult to keep up with what the science is or to understand what the science is. Nonetheless, in Ireland, there are going to now be warning labels put on liquor bottles, pointing out that there is a risk when you drink that you could be causing cancer along with other health information. Is this the way of the future? Is this what we should expect someday to see here? Would this make a difference? Would it help? Dan Malik is a health sciences professor at Brock University and the author of Try to Control Yourself, the Regulation of Public Drinking in pa- Post-Prohibition Ontario. He joins us now. Dan, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So is this surprising that a country, I mean, when I, I know it's a stereotype, but it's probably unfair. When I think of drinking, um, when other people think of drinking, maybe Ireland is one of those (laughs) places they think of, fair or not. Is it surprising that that would be a place where warning labels would lead the way? Uh, It's not surprising to me. Ireland has also got a very strong public health uh, organization that is very focused on what I would call neo-temperance approaches. Uh, So as much as Ireland has this stereotype, and it may be a reaction to the stereotype as well, uh, which isn't really a fair stereotype, but, you know, certain drinks are considered part of Irish culture. Yeah, so so I can see why it would seem um, problematic, but uh, but also at the same time, this the strength of or the activism of their public health um, uh, people uh, makes this not surprising to me. And, and you know what, the stereotype, you're right, the stereotype may have something to do with the fact that they are pushing for this, that it's, mm-hmm. that it's why not do this here as opposed to anywhere. Is it though worthwhile? It, do, is there sufficient evidence at this point? Because you know, earlier today I was looking up and uh, to try and find the answer to this, uh, which is a very broad question. I mean, does drinking yeah. lead to cancer? Which is one of the things their warnings are going to say. And again, it's really hard to find a crystal clear answer to this. So, it, is this a proper warning to be putting on? I wouldn't say that it's a proper warning. Um, it's definitely something that a certain cohort of alcohol researchers have been pushing for for a long time. I mean, they've been very clear in wanting alcohol to be considered the new tobacco, even though the the cancer risks of tobacco are so much more excessive or extreme and clear than the, the risks of alcohol, uh, cancer and alcohol. There is some research that suggests there is increased risk of certain cancers when you drink a lot of alcohol. Um, some people ex, um, sort of read that backwards to say, well, if you drink a lot and your risk increases by this amount, then if you drink half that much, it might increase by half that amount. But that's actually not how the body works, right? Um, so people think, oh, there must be a cancer risk. And there is some cancer risk. But is there the kind of cancer risk that that require first of all cancer there's multiple cancers and alcohol actually is protective against some cancers um in some very strong evidence there um there's other cancers that it has no effect one way or another and there's some that it does have some moderate increase in risk um but but we have this thing about cancer right that it's and and i we've all been affected by cancer i'm sure my father died from cancer so i'm very serious about this that we look at cancer and think oh my god that's going to kill me, right? Mm. And so it's an easy one for anti-alcohol researchers to jump on and pull on the heartstrings and push those emotional buttons and all of that sort of stuff. But it's much more complicated than a, a warning label is going to um, capture. And and so it will, I, but I would I call it, the, the short answer is it's overreach. It's far I just, overreach. Yeah, I, there's a couple things. First of all, I mm-hmm. wonder if people will just ignore it. Like, I mean, if you're going to, if you are a smoker, I'm not a smoker. I don't know if you're a smoker, mm-hmm. but if you're a smoker, you want to smoke. And so it doesn't matter what people put on the boxes, you're going to buy those cigarettes and you're going to smoke. Yeah. So I don't know if it just gets ignored. But the other thing is, I mean, we hear stories all the time from research saying, hey, if you eat tofu, it'll give you cancer. If you eat this, like almost anything, yeah. someone can find a study that says it leads to cancer. So yeah. where do we draw the line of what is yeah. warning worthy and what isn't? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And that I think is the thing that in this case, it may have been an overreach. Um, we know that certain type, certain forms of cooking create things called mild, mild reactions, which is carcinogenic. It's like caramelizing Barbecuing. and that sort of thing on the barbecue. Yeah. Um, uh, certain processed meats 
Hot drinks, here you go, over 65 degrees Celsius drinks are linked to esophageal and other cancers. Really? Yeah, yeah. So be careful with your coffee, right? But yeah, I know. But but those aren't as easy targets as alcohol because people, we see the the dangers of excess in alcohol and there are dangers I'm not going to deny. And we see the dangers of things like drinking and driving, um, which I'm not going to deny that either. And so it's easier for people to, and, and alcohol is just considered a recreational substance. It's not considered to have any functional value, although I would question that. Um, and so it's easy to go, oh, well, see, it's just a problem. And now here's another problem that alcohol causes. And yet it's so, that's such an overly simplistic interpretation of, of alcohol place in our lives and in our physiology mm. and, and, and in our social lives as well. Dan, I am yet to uh, purchase um, anything from any of the cannabis stores that are legal in Ontario now or can- across Canada. Are there warning labels on that when you buy that? Do we know? Yes, there are. There, there are. are. Okay. Warning labels. Yeah. All about, right. And, and they do use, um, it's, it's kind of this, this interesting language uh, has been linked to or may cause those sorts of things. Which, uh, yeah, so it it does have that. And that is because Health Canada is managing the packaging and sale and all of that stuff, even though a recreational substance normally isn't managed or overseen by Health Canada. I mean, really, uh, and we got to go in a second here, but Mm -hmm. really, I mean, as I'm listening to you, I kind of, it sounds like this might be overkill, but at the same time, if people are going to consume it, no matter what the product is, cigarettes, cannabis, booze, whatever, is it really, is there really any harm in putting a warning label on? I, I guess the flip is, does it do any good, but is there really any harm in putting it on? Yeah, I, th- I think there are. I mean, when we create these ideas that certain things are harmful when they may not be, or when they may even be, uh, in some cases, not very much not uh, like helpful and protective, uh, it does mean that we're favoring one type of health information over another, the, the fear-based health information. Um, industry is saying, look, that's going to cost us. So it's putting a, a new cost on the labeling for industry, which which is a problem because it increases the cost of alcohol, although the anti-alcohol people have no problem with that because it means fewer people will buy it, possibly. Mm. And like you mentioned earlier, it there's, there's actually very little evidence that that labeling changes behavior. Yeah. Uh, well, so, so there's that issue of not only overreach, but like, there's a lot of time and money, public and private money being spent on this to what effect? I can't and wait that's... until the people decide that we're going to put labels on fruit loops and children's right. cereal because oh, yeah. it'll kill you if you, well, oh, okay, yeah. I'm going to eat it anyway. So, yeah, uh, Dan Malik, <laughs> uh, professor at Brock university. Thanks so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Turns out that since 2000 and is it 2018 or 2019? I'm just looking here. The governor general salary has gone up by $48,800. She is now being paid $350,000 a year of your tax dollars. Mm-hmm. But it's not even so much the 350,000. It's the fact that it's basically a $50,000 raise during COVID and after at a time when people have been pinching pennies, at a time when people have lost jobs, have been out of work, have been stuck at home, at a time when all of our leaders, and this person is one of our leaders, at a time when all of our leaders keep using that bloody phrase, we're all in this together, which I swear the next time someone says that, I'm going to take a screwdriver and jam it in my ear hole so I don't have to hear it ever again. $50,000 dollar raise in that time. Let me bring in Chris Sims, uh, director, Alberta director with the Canadian Taxpayers Association. Uh, Chris, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, my condolences to Tina Turner's family. She was definitely a queen. Uh, yeah. And you know what? Um, I, I, I hate to be so, uh, cynical, but she earned her money. Sure did. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, her private dancer, uh, album was stuck in my cassette. Yeah. <laughs> most of my childhood. She's amazing. Um, this, this issue we're dealing here with the Governor General, I want to clarify this by saying it's nothing personal. We're talking about the office. So whether it is, you know, Adrian Clarkson or Mary Simon, whoever's doing it, we're talking about the expense here at the office. And the way you just described it is exactly it. This yep. is an unjustifiable pay raise, especially when people are hurting so much. And they're not just hurting in the sense that, yeah, prices have gone up a bit. 
No, we're seeing record demand for working people using food banks. That is eye-watering. Chris, where are where is the one leader? And I, I look, I, all I'm looking for is one. I mean, yeah. I'll start with one. Where is the one leader who, over the past five years, has said, "I am not willing to take a salary increase because I am an elected official, and the people who elected me are hurting, and it seems unseemly and unsightly for me to continue to get pay increases when others are hurting." Where is that one person? Federally, it's basically you can see tumbleweeds going across the plane. Uh-huh. Uh, nobody's standing up and speaking up about this. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Provincially, credit where it's due. In Nova Scotia, the premier gave himself a big pay cut and recalled the legislature to stop a pay hike in the middle of a holiday. Okay. So, All right. Good for them. Due. All right. All yeah. right. A little applause for them because yep. I that that's. But no one seems to have followed that lead. And I tell you what, when I when again nothing personal. I have no beef with Mary Simon as a as a person. Uh, or as a inner position, but you know, we, we keep hearing this phrase, we're all in this together and we are, we are public servants. We are servants of the people. We sacrifice to be servants of the people. I'm, I got to tell you in the last number of years, it is very clear who is serving who, and it's not the public servants serving the public. You're darn right. Uh, I also hear the, we're all in the same boat. Uh-huh. Um, excuse me. No, we're not. We're all in the same storm, my friend. Uh-huh. Good. That's a good analogy. Yes. Yeah. Some of us are in taxpayer-funded yachts. <laughs> the rest of us are treading water. Yeah. So we've, we've seen those boats that the people, the refugees from Cuba come across to Miami, and that's what it sometimes feels like we're in compared <laughs> to the cruise ships. Um, we're in the leaky rubber dinghy. Exactly. And so in this case, just to give your listeners an idea, because if you start thinking 350000 I can't even wrap my head around that. That is $29,000 a month. Gross. And, and look, I, I, to my point about the increase, I, yeah. I do not take the position, maybe you do, maybe some people listening do, I don't know. I don't take the position that I expect the governor general to be going to food banks or eating macaroni and cheese every day. No. But I also think that if she had said, you know, when I came into office or whenever it was, that it was around $300,000 in salary plus a giant expense account, I can probably get by on that. And I think that I will just set an example by saying no thank you to the increases or, or immediately publicly redirect the increases to a food bank or something else. Yeah. Or to getting, you know, clean water on first aid. Whatever. Whatever. Anything. Take a pick. Um, But we're not seeing that. We're not seeing that kind of leadership coming from people who purport to be our leaders. And this is what we're saying. I'm not saying that the governor general needs to take the bus, but we are saying that she could have at least taken a pay freeze. Like we here at the Taxpayers Federation, we all took pay cuts during during COVID. So we're not even asking them to do what we've done. At least put a pay freeze on this thing. But I wonder, Chris, let me jump in because I do wonder at a certain point, I do wonder if there is something about the position and it, I mean, I don't want to point out just a bunch of women, but it just happens that the last governor's general mm-hmm. have been women, but Adrian Clarkson, there were all kinds of issues about spending there. Julie Payette, we know what happened there. Now, uh, now this one, now Mary, Mary Simon, I mean, what? What is it about, I'm not saying it's a, it's not a gender thing. It's a position thing. What is it about the position that people who I think otherwise come into the position as respected, uh, sensible people suddenly get drawn into this thing where we're going to just spend and spend and spend. So taking off my CTF hat for a second and just being a woman, it is expensive to dress as a head of state straight up. It's going to be, if you're buying this fancy dress, and you need to be at some gala, you know, twice a month, that's going to get up there. Whereas a gentleman, typically speaking, can buy a fancy suit and wear it all the time. Uh-huh. Fair <laughs> enough. If a, if a lady tried doing that uh, and wearing it a couple times in a row, it would be noted. Now, I personally think that would be admirable. The point here is that they're not just getting by. Again, they gross $29,000 per year. And all of their expenses are paid. And to be very clear, that means food, 
housing in a gorgeous mansion. If anyone has seen Rideau Hall, they'll know what I'm talking about. And $130,000 over the term of their time in clothing expenses. If you can't dress appropriately for $130,000, you're shopping at the wrong places. I'm sorry. Exactly. And then let's look at the travel expenses. Uh, Mary Simon, the governor general, current governor general, was the one who blew about $100,000 on what they called airplane food for a week-long <laughs> trip to the Middle East. And you say you don't have a beef with her? You might have a beef Wellington with her. This is it. They were dining on things that I can barely pronounce, like beef carpaccio, super fancy things. This is where we're saying, especially now, especially that we've seen businesses close down, we've seen people lose their jobs, we've seen record numbers of people depending on charity to eat, that our leaders need to take a page and an example. And yeah. they need to say, let's, let's take a knee, let's not have a pay raise. Great, great point. And again, I, like, I think when Adrienne Clarkson came in, I mean, she had come from the CBC and the arts community, whatever that means. Well, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe there was more whining and dining, but Julie Payette was an astronaut and Mary Simon comes in, you know, and and all of a sudden with the expense account there, it's suddenly we're going to go crazy and spend and take these huge increases. Anyway, let's, we got to run. Chris Sims, the Alberta director with the Canadian Taxpayers Association. This will be something we continue another day for sure, because you know what? Another day there'll be another pay raise and we'll get to talk about it again. Sure Uh, will. There's going to be a tiara. Just you wait. (laughs) Chris, thanks for doing this. As long as we can remember, uh, sports has been a big part of TV. And for as long as we can remember, I think sports has not just been a big part of TV. It's been a real, it's been a savior almost for TV networks and cable companies, because unlike other things where you PVR it and watch it later or fast forward, whatever people don't seem, and I can speak myself included, don't seem to want to watch a game long after it's done. You want to see it live. It's the one thing that advertisers know that if they advertise on, they're going to have eyeballs. That's, that's very valuable. Well, there is a suggestion that that is about to change considerably, maybe in a little bit, maybe way down the road, but things are about to change. I want to bring in Bill Briou. He is a television critic. He's an author. He is the guy behind Briou TV. You can find it online if you need to read some good stuff on television and have some free time you want to spend there. Uh, Bill, how are you today? I'll spend there. Uh, Bill, how are you today? I'm doing well, Scott. How are you? I could not be better because I don't have a cable channel and I'm not sorting through this mess, which uh, it sounds like, it sounds like right now. And if I can understand this and explain it properly, a lot of the cable, because everyone's cutting the cord, ESPN and other cable companies are saying, well, how do we maintain eyeballs on our product? So many of them are talking about jumping to a streaming service that you would pay individually for each channel. Have I sort of got that correct? Yeah, you know, it's all down to money, of course, and it's always going out on a limb talking about the future of television because it changes every four days. But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, we're t- we've heard so much in the last several years about streaming and all these studios and they all media companies put their money. They, they were all in on streaming. And then, oh, you know, it's people started bail out of the streaming because, you know, we were paying extra or, gas and heat and everything else. There was a lot of inflation. So um, things are a bit up in the air. But what one thing they found is that, uh, yeah, the old model of subscribing in the U.S. to ESPN or, say, TSN or Sportsnet in Canada, um, that, was, uh, that was working. But now that um, people are cutting the cords, there's less money that is being put into the pockets of the people who own those companies. And I think Disney in particular, who owns ESPN, they've their shareholders are reeling because they've lost a lot of money on the streaming efforts and, you know, the parks and everything else. They're looking for ways to balance the books and they're looking at ESPN and thinking, well, what if that was just a streaming service and how much could we get for subscribers there? Yeah, pull it off that's cable. That's what's got everybody's attention. Right. Pull it off cable so you don't get it for free and you have to pay for it. The problem with this bill, and it goes back to, I think, the whole the way streaming has gone. When we, when people started cutting the cord, it was great because instead of paying a hundred dollars for cable, I could pay whatever it was at the time, $9 a month for Netflix and that had everything. And then maybe there was one other one I did. And so for $20, I got everything I wanted. Well, now you're paying what, 19 or 25 or whatever it is for Netflix. Plus you need Disney plus, plus you need Crave, plus you need Amazon prime plus 
all of a sudden it costs more to stream than it ever did for your cable. And now they want to hit you with one or two sports channels. If you want to watch that, suddenly it's even more money than we paid before. Well, you know, to, to pardon the analogy, the, 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 the sports audience is the big football. And I mean, it's sort of the last big tent pole of broadcast television. As you said earlier, you know, this is live. You've got to watch it in real time. And that's why uh, on Sundays, NBC and Fox and CBS, they're all uh, their most highest rated shows are NFL football absolutely like four or five times more than other shows on television. And so, yeah, they're loath to lose that. And that's why they pay a fortune in rights, but those rights are now being nibbled away by streamers. You know, Apple TV plus has major league baseball on Friday nights, double headers, prime video shows football games. And uh, you know, there's more uh, streaming services getting involved. Paramount is part of CBS and they're looking at other rights for sports so it's starting to fragment and, uh, you know, this might be the slippery slope straight to cable or to streaming. Why would, and I know that the networks pay a lot of money, but if the networks are paying the money, they're not doing it to lose money. They believe they can still make a profit with advertising. Why would, for example, the NFL then at the end of this deal, not just reabsorb all of the different contracts that it's got out with ABC and NBC and CBS and everyone else and just stream them all on nfl.com, but charge a fee for that of say $200 a year or whatever. Why would it, why would they not just bring it all home? There's some technical reasons, you know, I mean, the Super Bowl, for example, is watched by over a hundred million people. It would blow up the internet. It mm. would, you know, everybody trying to watch the Super Bowl on streaming, it would all be frozen for like three hours because there's just, it, there's no capacity. There isn't the capacity to do that yet. So, you know, there's those practical technical reasons. Uh, even just an average game draws an audience of 15 or 20 million uh, on, uh, say, a, an afternoon on CBS or Fox. So um, there's limitations there. And I guess, you know, it's still a lot of ad revenue that's on broadcast. And we're even sort of seeing almost a, a reinterest in broadcast lately as the streamers falter a bit. So right, right. I, I think people are just hedging their bets. Well, and a guarantee, right? I mean, if, if, if every game is on NFL, but you are living off everybody deciding to buy your package, it's a guaranteed money. If CBS and NBC, they just hand you whatever it is, hundred billion dollars each and away you go. Yeah. And you know, so the question in Canada is, what does this mean for hockey? What does mm. this mean? Rogers had this 12-year, $5.2 billion deal with the NHL exclusive. That's coming up in another three years plus. And, uh, That'll what, be interesting. Know, yeah. And the Leafs never did make it very far in the no, playoffs. That's been that a complete time. bust because the, the Canadian teams never have done well enough, I think, to really make that worthwhile for them. But it's, uh, it's, it's something to keep an eye on because, again, I don't know how many people – if they have to pay for sports or pay specifically for, I don't know how many will jump on board that there will be some, but it's uh boy, that, that suddenly becomes a whole new world that uh, we'll have to see on that one. Uh, Bill Bree, television critic, author, favorite guest on the show here. Bill, thanks for doing this today. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. There are a number of things that get the government does that you look at and you say, boy, oh boy, what in the world are they thinking? Uh, certainly, you know, there's, there's plenty of stupid things that are done. I got to tell you though, there's one, once in a while you come across something and you say, yeah, that seems like a terrific idea. Now I, I may be missing something here because, you know, I don't want to get too carried away, but a trusted traveler program at Canadian airports where you can be from the sounds of it, essentially pre-cleared some people anyway that will move things along in our airports and move some people through who we believe are safe to uncongest the lines. Uh, yeah, sign me up for that one. Barry Choi is a travel and personal finance expert. Joins us now. Barry, how are you today? I am good. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you doing this. This, you know, we, we point out the flaws and the stupidity when they come up. This actually sounds, and I know it's existed before, but it went away. This sounds like a great idea. <laughs> Well, it still exists. That's the thing. We've got the Nexus program, which has been around for years. 
And the government kind of cleaned that up earlier this year. But the big knock against Nexus is the fact that you have to do an interview sometimes on both sides of the border. Uh, that said, a lot of airports in Canada, including here at Pearson International Airport, you can do the interviews. Uh, so don't get me wrong. Introducing this trusted traveler is nice. But to me, it feels like all you're really doing is sliding things. You're not necessarily making the lines faster. Um, so having a new program is good, but I feel like we're still missing a lot of infrastructure. I don't know if you've traveled to the U.S. recently, but a lot of U.S. airports have the 3D machines now, so you don't need to take out the liquids or take off your shoes. They can literally scan everything. So, so I would argue that's where you want to make the investments. All right. So, so maybe I don't understand and that's fine. And I have traveled recently and I have seen those, but I also being in the airport know there is, there are a few things that we experience in our life that are more painful than the long security lines and then the machine that doesn't work or waiting, anyway, all that stuff. So the idea that if we could somehow be on this list as a trusted traveler, it's kind of, I, I just, I said, it's sort of like having one of those passes that let you drive in the HOV lanes on the highway. It sounds like a good thing. Is it just that it's not necessarily done right? Is the concept good, but the execution is just not perfect? The concept is great. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's, if you think about the U.S. TSA pre-check, it allows you to go into the faster lane uh, so that you can instantly you know, bypass things. Right. right. You still have to go through the security, but you're not going through the x-ray machine like the full body one is what I'm not talking about. You're not taking off your shoes. You're not taking off electronics. Um, but our issue, I find, is, is infrastructure. Anyone who's traveled through Pearson International Port who's gone to the U.S., they know where the logjam is. So like, it's hard to add in new machines or, or add in more stuff. Or even like I travel through through there about once a month. And quite often, two or three lanes are just closed because they don't have enough stuff. Maybe that's part of the problem. Uh, or, or, you know, how many times have you come back from Canada, you see all these immigration deaths, and then like, there's only two people working. Uh-huh. Mind you, a lot of it's become automated. So in theory, it should get things quicker. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's only so you can only move so fast when it comes to picking up your luggage because you're depending on someone else to get it to, uh, you know, the luggage carts first. So, so there's still a couple of pain points. I think we need to increase the staff. Pearson is one of those airports. It, it was kind of built at the wrong time in the sense that it was the last of the newer airports from 20 years ago. But now modern airports are, are just built better because they understand how many travelers are going through. Uh, those, those automated things, uh, great idea. The problem when I've watched though, is that people just don't do it right. <laughs> and so it ends up, cause it, they can be confusing and especially, I don't want to be too broadly brushing a group here, but you know, if, if you're elderly, these are not the easiest machines to try and sort through and figure stuff out. It does slow things down, even though it's supposed to be quicker. So, all right, let's get back to this though. The trusted traveler who, yeah. who qualifies? Cause uh, I mean, look, we all, or many of us still, and I hate to even bring this up. We still remember nine 11. We don't want just anybody getting a pass to be able to do this. So who gets to be the trusted traveler who gets to have the fast pass essentially. So they don't have to go through all the stuff. Technically speaking, you just got to apply and then they just kind of run a background check in the back. Uh, presumably, if you haven't been to any questionable countries or any countries that they're watching, uh, or if you're from certain countries, like I hate to stereotype, but I'm sure that's exactly what the government is doing here, right? Um, yeah, but you probably. would probably just have to list off similar to Nexus. Where have you been? What do you do as a career? Some basic questions. And that's like a quick screening more than anything else. Uh, and that's what people don't realize. The Nexus process, besides getting an interview, is actually pretty straightforward. And I'm assuming this trusted traveler will be similar, but at the same time, you still need all that staff. You know, it's one thing to clear the security line. If there's only a few U.S. Customs officers working, you still got to wait for U.S. Customs, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I almost, and look, they're not asking me, but it almost seems to me that it should be a, it, it makes sense if it was a multiple use, a a... a you know, if you've flown 50 times in the last year, probably they know now that you're safe rather than someone, <laughs> honestly, rather than someone who applies for something and they haven't flown, but you get clearance that, that doesn't mean the person is safe. That's I mean, it, exactly. Yeah. And I just, like I was saying, I, I do, I don't even think the passengers are the problem, right? You can just speed things up. People are still going to go through the security checks. So, so yeah, of course, if you've got the trusted TSA, whatever we're going to call it in Canada, uh, it only goes to you so far if you're getting held up at the other choke points at the various airports. But, you know, again, I do like this program. It's just like I was saying, we already have an existing program. So I don't know how much this is going to help. 
So it will help, but there's still other issues that airports need to address in Canada. Yeah, it's, it is, uh, again, I love the idea. And I think most people who have been in an airport lately would probably love the idea of finding a way to just move things along if there are people who can be trusted and who we really believe can be trusted. I think that would be great because it's like a lot of other things. Who cares if someone else gets to go quicker, even though it might bug us, because them not being in line is going to make us go quicker too. It helps everybody. Yeah. So one good example that I use, and a lot of listeners may have not seen this, if you've flown through LaGuardia recently, they rebuilt this their airport. And this is what I mean. So their TSA pre-check, which is the U.S.'s version of Trusted Traveler, is the equal size of their regular uh, customs line or, or lineup for security. So what I'm getting at is if Pearson only has one lane for Trusted Traveler, what good is that going to do to us, right? <laughs> so, so you really, really need that extra infrastructure in place more than anything else. It's a great point. Uh, and by the way, LaGuardia, the guy who's rebuilding LaGuardia used to uh, run Hamilton Airport. So there you go. Uh, Barry no, Choi, no. travel and personal <laughs> no. finance expert. Really appreciate the time today, Barry. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Anytime. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. So the World Cup is coming to North America in 2026. Mexico and the States and Canada. And we're supposed to be hosting a number of games in Canada, but five of them are tentatively scheduled to be held at BMO Field in Toronto. However, however, according to the to documents um, that have been leaked or put out there, the cost involved in what is going to be entailed in this starting to get a little wild. Let me read a quote from this internal note about where things are now. This is from the province. The city and Canada soccer were originally seeking $76 million each from the province and federal government. However, costs are escalating rapidly. The most recent revised ask ask is for $92 million, the internal note warned. $92 million each. Let me bring in Moshe Launder, Senior Economics Lecturer with Concordia University. Uh, thanks for doing this today. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. This is almost getting up to your salary at Concordia for what we're going to have for soccer games in, in Toronto. Yeah, I was thinking about <laughs> donating a portion of it to cover the costs here. But uh, yeah, I don't think we're done with seeing the, the cost escalation either. This is, okay, look, I love soccer. I love sports. I love sports events. I think they bring people together. I think they're great for the community. There is nothing I don't like about them. But $92 million for each of the city and Canada soccer for five games, I'm sorry, that's insanity. I agree. Now, I will preface this by saying I am a sports fan, and I'm hoping to be able to attend one of those games. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it's completely crazy. And this is why uh, I time and again will come on your show or any show and say, you don't put public funds into arena construction, stadium construction, into hosting big international events that require infrastructure. They race out of control and you're ultimately left with uh, facilities that can never hope to recover that cost. Well, and I don't even know that, and this is why it gets so puzzling. I don't know that there's money going into the facility here. BMO Field exists. Maybe there's some I'm assuming most of this is for security or transportation or, or things that, and here's where it gets even worse then, because these are fleeting things. I mean, at least if, at least if you had this going into a facility, that's a legacy that's left afterwards. If this is for security, gone as soon as it's done. And the thing is FIFA and the IOC are crazy people. Um, like they can be up until the day before the event show up and say, change this. Uh, and it, it's in the small print. It's, it's in the agreement that you sign up to when you agree to these things. And so that's how these, these costs quickly turn crazy on you because they, they could just show up and they could say, you know what? I don't like the grass. <laughs> change it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. Know, they're yeah. putting on a multi-billion dollar event that goes around the world and they are not going to be embarrassed uh, by any of the host cities. So, you know, it, it's weird in the case of Toronto because I, I really don't see what the advantage is to Toronto. It's not like it's an unknown city around the world. It's not like it doesn't have a diverse population that can transmit the beauty of Toronto back to any corner of the world here. So 
what's gained by this? Well, and again, I, look, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who will say, I don't want any money spent on events like this because I'm okay if some, because again, I do believe that there are memories and there are bringing community together and, and the upbeat, I mean, Vancouver Olympics, I don't even know what the final cost was, but I know that those people who across Canada, who experienced that either in person or even just by watching, there was a great communal feeling of being Canadian. There, there's value in that, but there is value to a certain dollar amount. And I just, when I see 92 million to each, the city in Canada soccer for five games, I, I, I can't wrap my head around that amount. That, that just seems like we've gone way off the scale. Yeah. And, and that, unfortunately, the problem is that these events have gotten big time expensive, right? And there's a reason why, if you take a look, you know, the, the last World Cup was in Qatar. Um, the Olympics are in China. They're, they're in Russia. Um, you know, Vancouver 2010 now seems quaint. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it's it almost half a generation ago, right? And so the reason why these, these countries that are now hosting these events are hosting these events is because they don't have to go to their taxpayers and say, how do you feel about this? Like, how much are you willing to pay for civic pride um, or for, for nice, warm, fuzzy feelings? Uh, you know, I look back at the 1988 Calgary Olympics uh, part of my youth. And I, I look back on it nostalgically, but I, I was vocally against Calgary when they were thinking about gearing up for a 2026 bid, because it's, it, it's not, it, it's not worth the cost anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, hey, we, you go to a concert, you pay for a concert ticket, it's going to cost you something, but you feel like you get something for that at the end. But I don't think that if you were, if your favorite band was rolling into town and a ticket was $250, you might say, ah, oh, that's a lot, but okay. But then if they say the ticket price is $10,000, you're probably going to say, thanks, I'm out. I'll watch it on YouTube. I mean, there just, there is a point at which it becomes ludicrous. You mentioned Qatar, a uh, $200 billion for the Qatari World Cup. Uh, if you go and look at photos online of the stadiums that were left after the Rio in Brazil, the, the World Cup there, there are stadiums in the middle of the jungle that have been abandoned. It's it, like, it, it becomes goofy. We have to have some sort of plan for this. But Moisha, so that's my long ramble. Here's the problem though. If you are the provincial government, are you not immediately portrayed as the bad guy? If at a certain point you say, we're not paying any amount of money and sorry, there won't be a world cup game or five in Toronto. You do have the capacity to take that, that stance. Uh, you know, I, I think the issue now for the Ford government is that they have to consider what, what is the backlash from non-Torontonians, right? It's it's the Ontario taxpayer that's going to have to come up with 300 million, 600 million, whatever the number is. It's not just the people of Toronto that are going to have to pay for it. And so it, it becomes an issue of, uh, was anybody asked? Was this an election issue? Was this something that was discussed with the voters? Are we going to have a referendum in Ontario or a plebiscite? Like the, the government now has to take the position that, all right, it, it might be you know, taking a hit here, being the bad guy and saying, we're, we're not going to support this. Uh, but are they equally going to become the bad guy when everybody's handed a tax bill saying this wasn't even in your town? It, it wasn't even something that you were able to attend. It, it's slightly different than the concert analogy used because you, you have ultimately the decision whether you want to go to the concert or not. A taxpayer in London, for example, doesn't have a right. choice necessarily. Well, they could drive. They're going to pay for this. Yeah, they could drive, but they probably wouldn't. So, so what if the, what if the Ford government or whomever, I mean, they, the Ford could be out by the time this happens. What if they were to say, you know, we're not paying $92 million. What we're going to do is allow the Canada soccer or FIFA to set ticket prices that will reflect what it's going to cost and will let people who really are into this pay for it. Now that might mean a ticket price of $5,000 and people will lose their minds, but is that a better option? Well, no, because remember that FIFA is standing there watching this saying, you're, you're not doing that to us, right? We hold the power here, not you, the Ford government. So you can decide that you don't want to put money into this. Uh, but FIFA then can then come along and just say, and you know what, we don't want you hosting it at all. So thank you very much for your time. But uh, we're going to give these games to either another Canadian city, for example, Vancouver apparently has come up with an arrangement between the province and the city as to how they're going to pay for this. Or they could just say, you know what, we're going to take it out of Canada entirely because these five games are not going to be any of the elimination round games anyway. They're just going to be qualifying games and uh, we'll, we'll just move it to a city that's prepared to do it. That's exactly how these sports leagues 
leveraged their position to get public funds put into arenas and stadiums and all of these other events. And we got to run. But I mean, and with the World Cup expanding in 2026 to add even more teams, I mean, are you going to pay $2,000 to go watch Canada versus Bermuda in a qualifying game? I mean, or, or Papua New Guinea versus... You know, whoever, I mean, it just, it's, 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 it's a, it's a lot of money, 92 million. And that's now, that's not even what's then. Uh, Moisha Launder, Senior Economics Lecturer at Concordia University. Always appreciate having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Anytime. I want to bring in one of our favorite people to have on here, not because he always is the bearer of good news, but because, because he's just a great guest. Let me bring on Dan McTague. Uh, he is, uh, well, everyone knows Dan McTague, president of Canadians for affordable energy, a man who, who comes to us whenever we have to talk about gas prices. And Dan, I hate to say this, but you're kind of like the weatherman. We rarely pay attention to you until things are going sour. So I'm known in these, uh, uh, quarters as the doomer boomer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. He's the, he's the grim reaper of finance. Um, and, and it's, and part of it, Dan is honestly, I, I, we all need gas for our cars for, to get our food to our grocery stores, all the, but I think for most people, honestly, it's reached the point where it's like the last thing we want to be spending our money on. It really is. It's just, it's a pain in the butt to constantly be looking and going, oh, today it's up to 163 cents a liter or whatever it is. It's just, it drives us nuts. I know. And look, I mean, you need it even to build your electric vehicles and all your other wonderful new gadgets they keep talking about. It's um, it, it's a market uh, and it used to catch people off guard. There was a time 28, 29, 30 years ago where people basically, you know, uh, for those of us who were around in those days, um, where people had to sort of second guess and uh, try to figure it out or get shocked the next morning when they filled up and realized it fell, you know, eight, 10 cents a liter or vice versa. Uh, the only thing we can do is provide predictability. And then with that predictability, I've also tried to provide an explanation. And uh, the, the news is never good, especially when you have what could be a price shock. And I'm not just talking about tomorrow's five cent increase uh, or the three cent increase that you're going to see come Friday. There's a, there's a headline. It's up eight cents between now and midnight tomorrow night for Friday. So if you haven't visited a gas station yet and you need fuel, might be a good idea not to fool around because it's not coming down anytime soon. Okay, that was going to be the next thing. Is this just a one weekend thing, or are we looking at uh, this being the case for a while now? Well, I think we're heading into uh, a bit of a uh, an energy bubble. Um, prices have been kept uh, significantly lower than what I call fundamentals, supply and demand. Supply is not very strong. We're short about 1.5 million barrels a day globally, and demand is uh, is is back to where it was. It's uh, it's strong, and it's not about to taper off, especially these, especially in the United States or what we were paying this time last year. You know, Scott, we were 215 liter this time last year. And it was pretty much in that you know vicinity until about the mid part of June. So, you know, the fact we're paying 158, 163 tomorrow, 166.9 on Friday, it, it's a lot. It's, it's uncomfortable, but it's nowhere near where we were uh, this time last year. And so I think that's really part of the demand picture. The other one, is that, of course, on the oil side, you've got governments like the United States and others that have used up their, their inventory. They've used up their supply, their strategic supply, and tried to use it as a price mechanism to, uh, to get votes. Uh, that isn't very bright, especially when you have to buy the stuff back by law. So we'll see what happens down there. But I suspect that even if prices were to come back down and you know the markets behave in a way that is irrational, which is pretty much the case now, um, OPEC's ready to drop another million-dollar production cut. I'm uh, sorry, million barrel a day production cut. That will only make the situation far worse. But they're uh, they're sending a message to uh, the American and European markets that uh, you better let uh, economics one on one prevail. If you don't, we'll force it on you. And yet we are well, we uh, governments are being stubbornly, and some people would say good. Some people would say absolutely great. We don't want more fossil fuels, but stubbornly resistant to doing anything about this. And I, I even wonder if, even if they, even if they had a change of heart today, what's the time frame that anything could actually change? It would be years, wouldn't it? Well, I think the reality is that that's not working. And, and for many, it was no big deal to accept that kind of, you know, dismissive argument, which is frankly uh, damaging to our economy because you still need fossil fuels like it or not. You need hydrocarbon, you need natural gas, you need oil. Uh, and it doesn't, as I mentioned at the outset, there's nothing that gets built without it. Your EVs, your uh, your solar panels, uh, your you know your windmills all need some degree of energy, and that energy is not being produced by you know uh, 
uh, by, uh, you know, by pixie dust. And so at the end of all of this, uh, I think we're Canadians and increasingly people are be- becoming involved is when they see uh, the standard of living diminish. They're seeing no change in those so-called emissions, but they're seeing a significant increase in the, in the cost of living, which isn't just confined, of course, to gasoline and diesel. But if that were the case, no problem. But now it's meandered into food. And it doesn't help that you have a government at the national level, uh, which has a lot of friends uh, and a lot of grifters who get money from the government to go lecture us further on climate, who are pushing not just one, but now two carbon taxes. By the way, Scott, uh, you're going to notice your mileage is going to start to tank, pardon the pun, uh, with, the, with the increase in ethanol that is being required on the second carbon tax, the clean fuel standard. So not only will you be paying more, you're going to be getting less for what you do pay for. Okay, so we only have 30 seconds, but explain that really quickly when you say that the mileage will go down. It, less miles to the gallon, or I guess kilometers, but yeah? Yeah, we're going from 5 to 15% ethanol in all our gasoline, including premium. So get ready. Uh, ethanol doesn't burn like gasoline. It's also pretty carbon intensive, so it's not the clean stuff you think. Most of it's being imported from the United States. Ethanol comes from corn and other byproducts and soy. So when you do use those products, you have to displace uh, crops that would otherwise be used for food. So it's a double, triple whammy. It's going to increase the cost of living and and decrease our efficiency in terms of travel. Always, always, always (laughs) good news with Dan McZay. Never good news. (laughs) President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Hey, we love having you on, even if you do sometimes bring us not the greatest news. Dan, always appreciate it. Thank you. For what it's worth. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The fallout from the decision yesterday, I don't know if fallout is the right word, the response, the reaction to his decision yesterday to say that we do not need a public inquiry continues. Lots of people with lots of opinions on this one. I want to bring in Phil Gursky. He is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and he's a distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Joins us now. Phil, thank you for this today. Do we have Phil? Have, Sorry, my there, pleasure. Thanks for having me on. There we go. Oh, there we go. You know, technology is a wonderful thing, isn't it, Phil? <laughs> Especially when it works. Um, you know what? There's so many things that we could get into here, and we talked about a lot of it yesterday. I want to, uh, because you do what you do, there is one particular thing that really puzzled me about the decision yesterday, and that was the sense, and, and I hope I'm not misspeaking or misquoting or misoutlining what David Johnson said, but that essentially this would not be a possible thing to do because there is some conf- uh, secret information, some stuff that couldn't be released. It's got to remain confidential and therefore we couldn't do a public inquiry, but have not we had public inquiries where confidential information has been part of it before? We have. And so that's a very paltry and inadequate excuse for not having the inquiry. I'm not a big fan of inquiries for the simple reason that we've had a gazillion in our past and you have to ask yourself, are they really worth the time? Do the recommendations get implemented? But you're absolutely right. Look, I've written six books on terrorism since my my uh, retirement from CSIS and I've relied on some stuff that I would have worked with during the time. Of course, I worded it in a certain way where I don't disclose sources or methods, but there's no question that had an inquiry been launched, there would have been ways to discuss what CSIS knew, not how it knew it, but in what it passed on to government. So I don't think this is a valid excuse on the part of the governor general. I mean, what, what comes to mind, and I don't know why this came to mind as an example, but for some reason, as soon as I heard, oh, we couldn't release this information because the public couldn't, we couldn't have a K, a trial or an inquiry. I thought of the Bernardo trial. I don't know why this came to mind, but when those videos, those horrible videos were shown, the jury saw them, the public didn't, but it didn't mean that the trial was still not worthy or proper, even though not everything was seen, that we still trusted that the people who were hearing it saw what they needed to see. So it, it it just, it seemed like it didn't make a lot of sense to rule the whole thing out because of that. That's a good analogy. Uh, There definitely are ways in 2023 whereby information that may be a little more sensitive in nature, and let's face it, you know, a lot of what I used to do at CSIS and what they do currently uh, is sensitive in terms of collection methods and things like that. But yeah, you know, we, we can do this. We've done it in the past. You mentioned Bernardo is a really good example. And so, as I said, the fact that the former governor general said that we can't do this because of classification uh, matters, I, I don't buy that excuse, to be perfectly honest. So we're going to have public hearings instead with him 
presumably as the hearing agent. Uh, two issues with that one. First of all, what's going to be different between a public hearing and a public inquiry? If you know the answer to that, you deserve a million dollars, my friend, because I have no idea okay. what the difference is in, in terms, of, terms of Canada. Is this semantics? I don't know. The bottom line for me, uh, and this is what was not really addressed in the report, in fact, it was undermined in the report, was that we have an intelligence service, CSIS, that's been reporting on China since its creation almost 40 years ago in 1984, providing top-notch intelligence, corroborated intelligence to a, success, a succession of governments of, of both political stripes, conservative and liberal, about things that China and other countries are doing. And it was ignored, or it was poo-pooed, or it was deemed to be uncredible. That, that to me, was the, was the, the critical element to this. And um, Mr. Johnson, frankly, in his report, uh, seemed to suggest that it wasn't important, that this piecemeal intelligence was just rumors. And I'll tell you, somebody who spent more than three decades in the industry I feel personally insulted by that. So, okay, let me ask you this then, because you're the perfect person for this, as you remind <laughs> me that that's where you worked. We have seen leaks coming out attributed to CSIS. Assuming all of that is true, when you say then that CSIS essentially is, you know, you're poo-pooing their work, are you not almost telling those people who are leaking, you know what, don't stop leaking uh, because we need more of this out there because now... We have to prove something. I, I, to me, it seems like if you were trying to shut the barn door, you've probably thrown it wide open, almost <laughs> daring them to say, all right, here's what's going on. Well, listen, for the record, I'm not a supporter of leaks. I was very careful over my career, both with CSE, but before I joined CSIS, uh, to not disclose things publicly that I wasn't authorized to do so. Since my so-called retirement in 2015, I've had conversations with people like yourself, where I've drawn on my experiences of working in security intelligence, but not disclose things that I shouldn't. So I don't support the leak. I understand it because of the frustration of the pe person who did it. Uh, by the way, we don't know the CSIS leak is in fact CSIS. It could be a former CSIS officer. It could in fact be a customer of CSIS that access the intelligence. Mm. That question hasn't been answered as far as I'm concerned. But no, I don't think that uh, we need more leaks. We just needed a government that uh, accepts that intelligence is valuable and that it can be used to make to help make decisions. No one in CSIS thinks that intelligence is the be all and end all. We are part of a larger puzzle. What I think concerns me and probably others is that we're not even being considered as being part of the puzzle at all because our intelligence is being ignored. Well, we're short on time here, but the other thing about this that seems blatantly obvious now is if you support the liberals, you think David Johnson did a fantastic job and was fair and objective and did what he was supposed to. If you don't, if you're an NDP or a conservative or one of the other parties, you think that he basically blew his entire reputation in one day and that this thing is a farce, but how then could he possibly sit as the mediator of this without it already being divided along party lines so that in the end, nobody who's not a liberal is possibly going to believe these public hearings are going to resolve anything. It's just going to be an exercise in bolstering the party. I'm not saying it is or it isn't, but mm -hmm. it seems as though that's going to be what everybody is going, who's not a liberal is going to be thinking before the first question is asked. You raise a good question. And I would have hoped that we get about partisanship on this level. I mean, yes, I mean, it's, partisanship is part of politics. We all get that. But we're talking about a country, China, that has interfered in elections in which both political parties, conservatives and liberals, have won elections in the past. And, you know, it's not just 2019 and 2021. There's probably more of it. I would have hoped that, you know, the leaders of the parties would all say, what's best for Canada? Not what's best for my party, what's best for Canada. And alas, we've, we've, uh, you know, descended into, into political partisanship and that, and Canadians deserve more. Uh, there, look, uh, Phil, how many people live in Canada now? 28 million, 38 million, 40, pardon me, 40 30, million. almost 40 million. We couldn't find one person not connected to the Trudeau family to be the person. I mean, we're going back in time here. <laughs> oh, because, don't go there, my friend. <laughs> well, surely there's one, surely there's <laughs> one judge or one person, one potential rapporteur who could have done this, who wasn't connected, but now it's hopeless, it's hopelessly partisan now. And that's the unfortunate part of this. Anyway, uh, Phil Gursky, I'm free. <laughs> yeah. Attention government, Phil Gursky, <laughs> president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, <laughs> distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's national security program. He is available. Please use him <laughs> just to try and help us out. Phil, thanks for doing this. Always appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. We in Canada apparently like to spend. I, I think that is the moral of the story from uh, what we're hearing from Canada's housing, top housing agency, Canada Mortgage and Housing.
has pointed out that uh, we have among G7 countries the highest amount of household debt. That we Canadians have put ourselves in a position, according to them, where we've got so much debt right now that a some sort of economic crisis that could hit, I mean, look, it's happened before more than once or twice, could put a lot of people into a tough spot. I want to bring in a favorite guest of ours, Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University to talk about this. Uh, Dr. Lee, thank you for the time today. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. This sounds not good, <laughs> I would think, but is it really a bad thing? Because I mean, there's always the threat that something could go wrong. Should we be not spending our money simply out of a fear that, you know, there could be a black time down the road? Right. Um, uh, to to uh, remind you and your listeners, I was a mortgage manager before I became a professor. I was nine years in banking in the 70s and 80s. And some can say that was a long time ago. The principles are still the same. You lend to a customer because they have the debt service ratios, so-called TDSR and the GDSR, because they have the minimum down payment required by law. The rules and regulations today are very, very similar to when I was lending. The mortgage lending business hasn't fundamentally changed. Uh, so where I'm going with this is, is that this, I'm not challenging the numbers. Let's be very clear. I don't want anyone to think that I'm saying these numbers aren't accurate. Of course they're accurate. What I'm challenging is the interpretation of the numbers. And um, I just completely and strongly disagree with the Bank of Canada. I'll be really radical now uh, and with the OSFI, the regulators, and with the CMHC, because they're putting out the story that us profligate Canadians, we're just spending like drunken sailors and we're just going deeply into debt because we're just so irresponsible. That is the narrative coming out of Ottawa. That's the narrative coming out of the mayors and the councillors' offices. And it is not true. Well, it seems happened, like, it seems like so much of this would stem from the fact that housing costs so much more now that we have to take on more debt. No? How's exactly, exactly. The reason that we are more indebted on average is because the average house is far more expensive than in these other countries. So if you buy a house, you have to pay the market price. You can't go and, I don't know, threaten the person and tell them to sell it to you, the seller to sell it to you at half the market price. You have to pay the market price. The market prices are much higher, which begs the question, why are market prices of houses and apartments and condos so much higher in Canada than next door in the United States? And there's a reason. And that reason is because, and I point the finger repeatedly at the councillors and the mayors in Hamilton, your city, in my city, Ottawa, in Toronto, in the GTA, in Vancouver, this narrative has emerged across Canada and the big cities. I just think it's fraudulent that building more houses is, they call it suburban and urban sprawl. If you build more homes, you're, you're, you're pillaging the environment. Well, for 2,000 years, cities everywhere, and I've traveled around the world to many, many cities, okay, including London and Paris and Kiev and Washington and New York and so forth. What happens when the city grows and the population expands? You build more homes. Where do you build them? Around the edges of the existing city, in a circle, in a concentric circle. And the city expands out and out and out. If you go to London, downtown London used to be by the Tower of London, which was less than a square mile. And now London runs 20, 30 miles. So my point is, is, is that we, our councillors, have deliberately deliberately restricted the supply of housing and socially engineered shortages in our country. There is massive shortages of real estate in our country. This has been documented actually by StatsCan. It's been documented by CMHC. Now, to, you know, to put, to be a little bit fair, not, not that I'm trying to be too hard to be fair to these councillors, but they say, well, you know, we can't, we got to increase the density. You know, we've got to, we just can't be, keep building on the edges of the existing cities. Well, the answer is, of course we can. We've been doing it for, for 150 years in Canada. If you go to the city of Ottawa, the national capital, the downtown of Ottawa used to be right beside Parliament Hill. It's called the Market, right beside Parliament Hill. And the first suburb was the Glebe, which is now considered downtown, downtown Ottawa, where I live. That was once upon a time, the first suburb. And then we just kept growing and growing and growing. That's what every city does. But this idea has emerged that no, 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 growth is bad. We cannot grow more homes. And and yet, and yet, 
we bring in more and more and more in absolute terms, more and more immigrants, which I support, by the way. This is not a coded criticism of immigration. But what I'm saying is if we're going to increase from 250,000 a year to 300 to 400 to 500,000 a year, we must build more houses. And unfortunately, the, the councillors in Hamilton and Ottawa and Toronto and Vancouver have not received this message. So if we want to know where is this crisis coming from, go and contact your counselors. And, they are causing this. And so now, if if this is, and you use the word crisis, and I certainly think, you know, housing crisis, but this all comes back to this idea of we have the highest level of household debt in the G7. When everybody or many, most, maybe people are in the same boat, is it worrisome or is it just the reality, and so let's not worry okay. about it because it's Thank you. what it is. Okay. Scott, I'm glad we've, okay, now I've dealt with the other issue. Now let's turn to the other side, which is the risk uh, claim. And that's what I meant a moment ago when I said, I flatly disagree with the Bank of Canada, the OSFI and CMHC. Each of them are saying heightened, elevated, um, a risk to um, to Canada and to the economy. And I want to now say to them that this is fooey. Um, and, and let me explain that. Okay, and I don't consult any bank, by the way. I don't consult any mortgage company. I just look at the data, hard, hard data. Government data, stats can data, by the way. Okay, so there's different types of consumer borrowing. There's mortgages we all know about. You can also get a car loan. You can get an unsecured consolidation loan. You can get a credit card. That's consumer debt. You can go to a finance company. And this data is all tracked and measured. The, the the type of credit borrowing that has the lowest rate of delinquency, bar none, forever, I mean, going back 70, 80 years in our country, is mortgage debt. As we speak right now in our country, the national mortgage delinquency ratio is 0.2. That means 99.8% of all mortgage borrowers are up to date. The delinquency on car loans and finance company loans and credit loans is much, much, much higher. That's where there's risk yeah, there, in there's, those types. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, it, I mean, it, look, it sounds scary and maybe it is. And maybe for some people with some of the debt they have, it, it is, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a story to keep an eye on for sure, because it's, uh, you know, regardless, we, the uh, fact. Let me get one more. Quick very, very quickly. Got 10 seconds, Ian. Got 10 seconds. Really important. When people say, well, what happens if they can't uh, pay their mortgage payment? The same thing we've always done. You put your house up for sale and you sell it. Last year, 661,000 Canadians sold their houses in the resale market. I didn't say they were all delinquent. They sold it because they were upsizing or downsizing or they couldn't afford it or they were moving or they were divorcing. Who cares? There's an option. You can't afford your house, you sell it and you pay off the mortgage and the problem goes away. That is Dr. Ian Lee, Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business. I always wish we had more time because you got a lot more to say <laughs> and we never can get it all in. I really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Folks, thank you for being here today. Uh, Scott Thompson will be back tomorrow. Loved having you along. Thanks to our guest. Thanks to Will for lining everything up. Tom, great job on the board today. Talk to you then. 